Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where all our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. You can relive past glories, or you can listen to us as a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, anywhere in the world, anytime or day day or night. And since air travel is recovering, I hear that things are back up, although 13% lower over the Memorial Day, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, only 13% over Memorial Day weekend, what the air travel volume was last year, which if my math doesn't fail me means air travel is down 87%. But no matter where you are traveling, hunkered in whatever bunker you are, you can catch us as a Google Stitcher or iTunes podcast because we're so 21st century. And it's always a pleasure to, to uh, now have Matt Robeson as my co-host because he's such a smart guy. He writes for thealternate.org. He has a blog at a moreperfectunionforum.com. He can count. He's very good at math. He's a one of those linear logical type guys who knows how to talk about the dots and connect the dots and what they add up to. And he, unlike me, probably qualifies as a real economist. He writes interesting things in a smart way. I only played an economist on TV when I was in Congress because I was on the Financial Services Committee. And when the networks came and, and asked for remarks, I had no hesitancy about making those remarks. But it was folks like Matt Robeson uh, who would uh, always be there to help me understand the true implication of what was going on in the United States, our economy, and uh, the global economy and world affairs. So we're going to talk in this show about uh, the pandemic and the economy and recovery or not, and the new normal or not, and some of the political implications. But before we do, I I said to Matt before we went on that that I needed just to vent a little bit. And I want to vent about a couple of things. First of all, we have a tremendous problem in this country, and it's a problem with race relations and racial disparity. It's inequity, it's injustice, and it's playing out repeatedly in the age of iPhones in videos which capture horrific scenes of police brutality and violence. Uh, just in the past few weeks, there have been numbers of incidents, the latest in Minneapolis, where my former colleague, Keith Ellison, is now the Attorney General for the state of Minnesota, um, a police officer who, according to the internet, um, was seen on stage with Donald Trump shaking his hand and wearing a MAGA hat, knelt on the neck of a man named George Floyd, who died shortly thereafter uh, in a hospital. Uh, the scene was caught on video while Floyd begged for his life, saying he couldn't breathe. And this is just the latest in a series of incidents, tragic police force excess, apparently, uh, which target uh, black people. Um, we have a terrible legacy in this country 
Um, we can talk about it also as we get into it in terms of the economic disparities, what they have meant for the pandemic in terms of the, uh, in, uh, the implications and the impact on the African-American community of the pandemic, highly disproportionate uh, to the impact on the white community in terms of the morbidity and mortality. Uh, and, you know, it goes back. We're a country that was founded, in, founded with the institution of slavery and we have a lot of work to do in this country. That's rant number one. And rant number two, although I'm sure it pains Matt to have me rant rather than discussing some of the cool and calculated uh, numbers that revolve around the economy and politics. Rant number two is what is going on when cowboys for Trump go to the White House, shake hands with the president, and then go on video, and cowboy for Trump, who happens to be some kind of county commissioner in New Mexico, I forget the guy's name, says the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. Well, let me just tell you, this Democrat is not dead. I'm not gonna be, and I'm not scared of these people, but it is just outrageous. And what makes it even worse is that the Cheeto-in-Chief in the White House last night at midnight felt obliged to retweet the video in which the county commissioner from New Mexico said, the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. Meanwhile, while we've got protesters, um, the, the anti-lockdown movement armed with AK-47s and camo and full military regalia parading around the state houses. Um, Trump is unfortunately fomenting violence, something which he does without hesitation and on purpose. All the while, frankly, ignoring what he really ought to be worried about, which is a coordinated, cohesive federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic, which gets us to the topic for today. The economic implications of the pandemic, what it says, what we have to look forward to, what were some of the historical uh, evidence that we could have relied on, um, and what are the political implications? So Matt, you recently published an article in uh, the Alternet, and folks can find that at alternet.org. If you do a search and you plug in Matt Robeson economics, you'll come up with Matt's article uh, published just a couple of days ago. And you take a deep dive into some of the uh, economic and political implications. What are you thinking? Well, I set out to try to answer um, a, an extremely complicated question in a, in a somewhat reasonable way, which is how much has Donald Trump's action or inaction in the COVID-19 pandemic cost us as Americans, cost us economically? I'm holding aside psychological, sociological uh, effects. I'm just thinking in terms of dollars and cents. We've seen a lot of the headlines about lost jobs, lost wages, uh, a shrinking growth, uh, negative growth uh, of gross domestic product. But what does it mean in terms of the cost to an American family, to an American household? 
And I'll just cut to the chase and, and say that I found that Donald Trump, via very clear decisions that he made, one in particular, is directly responsible for the equivalent of the biggest tax increase in American history, far and away greater than the biggest tax increase of the last 50 years, and greater even than the taxes that we passed back in 1942 to pay for World War II. It's at least an average of $12,000 per household, about $1.3 trillion overall, and climbing. And the only other thing I'll add is that, you know, an exercise like this is, like I said, extremely complicated. Um, economists, there, there's an old joke in economics, if you want to hear 10 opinions, ask two economists. So one could certainly have a lot of disagreements with how to go about this. So what I tried to do was to be as cautious and conservative as possible, all of which is to say the cost could easily reasonably be reckoned to be a heck of a lot higher. Well, so there's no teasing the end of this story. You've just um, given us the disastrous conclusion that you've come to. But I'm curious about your calling this a tax increase. Um, Republicans pride themselves on no taxes. They pride themselves on low taxes. They're the party of tax cuts and small government and and personal freedom and liberty. The last thing any self-respecting Republican, and I don't know that Donald J. Trump would want to be considered a self-respecting Republican. Self-respect is not a term I would apply, but putting aside the verbal semantics, how, why do you call it a tax increase? So a tax is just a cost imposed on you, on your private resources by the government for its own purposes. Now, when you break down the amount that all of this is costing you and your family, you can see that some of it you will have to pay for in the form of direct taxes of the kind that we're all used to paying at some point in the future. Some of it you're going to pay in the form of higher costs. Uh, but at the end of the day, make no mistake, that money's leaving your pocket sometime in the future. And by any reasonable person's definition, it is a tax that Donald Trump elected to pay, to, to make us pay, and due to some, you know, very, uh, um, very self-serving uh, political motivations. Well, I mean, you say it, that Donald, you basically say that Trump had some kind of choice about this tax increase on the American public, as, as if he was in charge of of making decisions as if he was uh, charged with the overall response to the pandemic. Um, now, you're not very kind to him in your article. You, call, you say he made disastrously bad choices, um, one of which I can think of right away was relying on his ne'er-do-well uh, failure of a son-in-law, Jared Kushner, 
Ivanka's squeeze, um, who he basically put in charge of uh, the pandemic response along with Vice President Pence. Um, but what choices, what choices did Trump make and why has that resulted in a tax increase? So I wanted to be very careful about this, like I said, because you could really tie yourselves in, in knots trying to untangle all of the many decisions that an administration makes that a president makes in a situation like this. So I tried to make it a very clear, single decision. And what I focused in on was the finding by prominent epidemiologists that 90% of the deaths so far in this first wave of the pandemic could have been prevented if we had done exactly what we did, exactly the same thing we did just two weeks sooner. If instead of issuing social distancing guidelines on March 16th, we had issued them on March 2nd. And I went and looked at other countries for comparison. I found that by the time March 2nd had rolled around, seven other countries had already implemented the kinds of guidelines that we did two weeks later. And 53 other countries in the world did so before we did on March 16th. So this is the kind of it's the kind of step that Trump could have taken, should have known he should have taken. And I presented some of the exhaustive research that uh, journalists have done over the last two months to carefully document all the times Donald Trump was warned that this kind of step would be necessary. And so what emerges is a very clear picture that Donald Trump chose for his own personal political purposes to ignore and downplay and cast blame elsewhere when it came to the looming crisis. And if he had simply done exactly what he already was going to do just a little faster, which he well could have, we would have prevented most of the deaths and we would have pre prevented most of the cost. So when we start to add this up and we think about the fact that perhaps 90% of the cumulative deaths in the United States could have been prevented, at least in what is the first wave of the pandemic, had the president acted earlier. We also have to recognize that each of those preventable deaths uh, imposes a cost on society um, because every single one of us is an economic engine, as you say, of consumption, investment, tax revenue, and production that affects the balance of trade. And uh, the balance of the economic loss and figuring out what that is, how to calculate it, why to calculate it, and what a recovery looks like, we'll take up in the next segment. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet. And we will be back after this work. We are back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, co-hosting on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. 
and we are deep in the weeds that only econo economists dare to tread in. And those weeds are muddy and thick and they come up to your waist and you can take a machete and hack away at them and you'll never get to the roots of the weeds because there's just too much mud and water and muck. But we're trying nevertheless because we're adventurers. And along the way, as I was thinking about our segment, I, I was casting about the internet and found the abstract of an interesting article um, that talked a little bit, not just about the United States, but uh, it was an abstract of an article discussing some of the global costs of the pandemic because we are in a global economy. Um, uh, no country is an island anymore on this tiny little planet floating floating in space. We, this pandemic has shown that what comes around goes around and we're all in it together. And the abstract for this interesting article, which was co-chaired by uh, professors from both uh, Switzerland and the University of Minnesota, said uh, this, if amidst the human suffering caused, uh, and caused by an influential epidemic, it is all too easy to overlook the disease's wider social and econ economic impact. Not only does influenza oppose huge infrastructure demands on healthcare systems, but it exacts substantial economic costs in terms of sickness-related absenteeism, disrupted work schedules, and lost productivity to society at large. Influenza itself, just influenza, accounts for around 10% of sickness-related absence from work in Europe, where the likely cost of lost productive productivity in France and Germany, for example, ranges from 6 billion pounds to 9 billion pounds per year. But how do you assess the full economic impacts? The direct costs are easy to identify. What about the indirect costs? How do you measure them? How do you assess the cost of lost opportunities? What are the economic gains of vaccination regarding costs? We don't have a vaccine yet. So it goes on and on. And you think about lost opportunities as one of the costs uh, in a pandemic, Matt. I'm thinking um, of the following. I just had a conversation today um, with a, a gentleman who runs a not-for-profit organization in New Hampshire. And he has a daughter who's 28 years old, who has had some struggles um, and had some mental health struggles. Um, and she has a three-year-old daughter. Well, a few months ago, she got a job and the family was thrilled. Family was delighted. And two weeks into the job, everything shut down. Lockdown happened. The economy went off a cliff. She lost her job um, and has now struggling again. So when you think about, that's just an isolated example, but multiply that by the number of families in the United States where kids have now returned home. They can't go to school. They can't go to work. 
They can't find jobs. You talk about lost opportunity. We're dealing with a generation of millennials in their late 20s and 30s who have grown up in the 21st century with now a trifecta of shocks to the system. First was 9-11, then the financial crisis, and now the pandemic. So you, when we talk about lost opportunities and economic costs, how do we figure this out? How do we, how do we figure out what this true cost is? So, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily take our listeners through too much of a math exercise. Suffice it to say, and I commend the article to everyone, but I went through the cost in terms of lives lost, the cost in terms of medical care, the cost in terms of increased debt burden uh, that we're going to pay through the federal government, the cost in terms of lost economic output. Uh, and I tried very carefully to tie all of that to that very simple dividing line of if we had acted two weeks sooner, which was very much in Trump's power to do, and he explicitly chose not to. But just to build on your point about some of the other costs and, and why I think we can say that this estimate, the biggest tax increase in history, is very conservative. It, it's a low ball, is we're not even accounting for some of the effects like what you just outlined with the family um, you're talking about and the, and, and the young woman who has struggled. Uh, it recently came out that uh, up to a third of Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety and depression. Uh, another finding um, that I do note in the article, don't really dive into, is that there are intergenerational effects of the kinds of unemployment, joblessness that we are seeing now that could have been prevented if we had had a shorter, shallower pandemic, which would have been achievable if we had acted a little bit sooner. Um, if you go through extended joblessness, it depresses the wages of your, 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 your own wages by up to 20%, up to 20 years later, and your kids can have lower wages by as much as 9%. So there are all of these kinds of compounding impacts that are very hard to reckon on. All we can say is that a lot of the economic disaster that we are going through right now was human caused, human preventable, uh, and it wasn't prevented. So you raise an interesting point that um, about, first about wages, but then got me thinking about future impacts. And one of the things I looked at, uh, because since you're the smart guy, I needed to make sure that I could, you know, maybe I could find some statistics or maybe I could find something that really got into the weeds of the economic kind of analysis that you're so good at. And I went and I found an article that was written in 2007 by, um, let's see, who was it? Thomas A. Garrett, the Assistant Vice President and Economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And he published in 2007, November, uh, a paper about the economic impact of the 1918 pandemic. Um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people dead, uh, very similar 
problems, um, all kinds of, I mean, it's the closest and the analog we have to try to do some predicting. And, and he, he talked in, in economist terms about uh, wages and what happens when um, he, he followed somewhat a simple model uh, because you're reducing the labor supply, you're increasing the marginal product of labor and capital per worker, theoretically, then you're increasing real wages. I mean, all these very confusing economist-speak kinds of ways. One of the point, interesting points he essentially made was those areas which suffer most during the pandemic could show the greatest degree of recovery after the pandemic. And why is that? Because they've suffered the most. They have the furthest to come back. So you could see the greatest increase in wages, productivity, and recovery. But the other thing I just wanted to point out that I found fascinating in his paper was he cited a recent paper exploring the longer term effects of the 1918 influenza. And the author questioned whether in utero exposure to the influenza had negative economic consequences for individuals later in life. And it was a study that suggested that women who were pregnant during the pandemic, who later gave birth might have greater medical problems later in life, such as schizophrenia, diabetes, and stroke. And so the author's hypothesis in that sense was that an individual's health endowment is positively related to his human capital and productivity, and thus wages and income. I.e., if you're born without uh, susceptibility to medical problems or disabilities, you have a much greater chance of being a happy, productive worker and earn to your full potential. So what this study did was it went back and looked at 1960 to 1980 decennial census data. And it found that cohorts in utero, co that's a great, that, that ought to be the name of a rock band. Paul and the cohorts in utero during the 1918 pandemic had reduced educational attainment, higher rates of physical disability, and lower income. Uh, specifically, men and women showed large and discontinuous reductions in educational attainment if they'd been in utero during the pandemic. The children of infected moms were up to 15% less likely to graduate from high school. Wages of men were five to 9% lower because of infection. So in addition to your wonderful calculations, and they are wonderful and interesting calculations about the value of lives and the direct cost of the pandemic, think about the follow on costs that we are gonna to have to bear no matter what the death toll is, no matter what the recovery looks like, um, the prospect of future generations being impacted by this is a real prospect. Yeah, I, you know, and, and, and to build on that and take it back to where you started the show, um, talking about the 
horrific incident in Minnesota, one of the political findings that's emerged in recent years, uh, there was a tremendous book about this, is that African-American voters are much less motivated by politics of anger than white voters. And one of the reasons, one of the explanations that social scientists put forward for that is that African-American voters have much lower expectations of what the political system, what the economic system is going to do for them. Um, They feel less invested because they have been consistently disappointed. And it does bring to mind, just to connect the dot to your earlier point, um, that a lot of the impact of the pandemic is being felt in a health sense and in an economic sense by people who are racial minorities and are lower wage to begin with and have less job security to begin with. And so there's a real question right now about what the political implication will be, what the political response will be. Um, Will people seek and, and see redress in our political system for a situation that is disproportionately impacting them when they have come to expect over time to not get as much attention from the political system. You know, the 2007 uh, paper that I talked about had a conclusion about implications for a modern day pandemic. And it projected um, an initial cost of several hundred billion dollars, the deaths of hundreds of thousands to several million people. So let's remember that we're um, uh, only in the first wave of this pandemic with folks celebrating in the lake of the Ozarks in Missouri without masks and jumping into pools, with people streaming to the beaches, uh, with summer upon us and people wanting to get out in crowds, um, we may very well see a very severe second spike of all of this, uh, which could make what we're going through now look like child's play. We're going to come back and we'll delve into some of these numbers and the political implications after a brief word from the good folks who keep the station on the air. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes of WKXL. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. There we are also podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we are in the weeds, folks. My boots are muddy. I've got my machete out. I'm hacking away at the economics of mortality. What does the pandemic mean for the economy? How much is it going to cost us? Matt Robeson has proposed that this is really the Trump tax increase because he made the bad choices for his own political gain to basically poo-poo. That's a political term, to poo-poo the pandemic. Oh, it won't amount to anything. It'll be over in no time. Not that many people are going to die. 
it's all under control. I'm doing the best job anybody's ever done. I'm the greatest. I can do it all. Don't worry about a thing. Nobody should worry. Don't bother wearing a mask. I'm not. Uh, it's all be over. It's going to be over by April. How do I know? Because I said so. And I'm going to put Jared in charge. Why? He's married to Ivanka. I like Ivanka a lot. Jared, I'm not so sure about. But Ivanka, he's a, he's a cute kid. We'll put him in charge of what to do. Oh, oh, don't tell me I should have acted earlier. I did everything. Nobody ever told me this was going to be a problem. Bingo. 100,000 plus people have died. The unemployment rate is, I don't know, 20%. Approximately 2.1 million more people filed for unemployment this week. Businesses have shuttered never to reopen. And Matt Robeson has taken a dive into the actual numbers. I mean, what does it mean? What are the actual numbers in terms of what it what it's costs? And I'll just start this way: that as odd as it may seem. It's not so odd if you ever dealt with a life insurance company or any insurance companies, but, but there are monetary values put on lives of people. Um, it happens in courts, courtrooms every day. I, as a former trial lawyer, I can say I presented figures to juries about values, trying to value a human life or value an injury or value the impact of injuries or loss of life uh, for purposes of compensation. And it appears that the various agencies and experts, such as Matt Robeson, uh, come down and say that a human life is valued at approximately $10 million. That seems like a nice round number, $10 million. So what does that mean if the value of a human life and that takes into account the productivity, the potential wage earning, and that's just the life, not what's gonna come afterwards for the progeny. But let's just say it's 10 million per life and we've got, oh, 100,000. It's a nice round number, 100,000 people in the United States dead because of Donald Trump's stupidity. Um, that, that's already a pretty big number in terms of the economic cost. Now, to be fair, we have to multiply that number by 90% because only 90% of those 100,000 deaths would have been preventable. That's still a big number. It's a starting cost to the economy of 1.3 plus trillion in the last two months. And by the way, how much has Congress put out so far in recovery packages? We started this exercise with the pandemic with a national debt of $23 trillion. Our deficits have fallen into an astronomical, astrophysical black hole in which there seems to be no way to climb out. The national debt is going to fall into that same hole. So we've spent trillions of dollars in recovery. The mortality and other costs have cost trillions of dollars. What's going to happen when the government faces this huge revenue shortfall? 
what's going to happen then? Then if Democrats come in, what are they going to do? Raise taxes? And then what happens then? GOP Republicans blame Democrats for raising taxes. It always happens. So Matt, the costs seem pretty trivial. $1.3 trillion, just, that's just not very much in the context of recovery packages of multi-trillion dollars. That can't be the only cost. It's got to go much higher than that, right? Like I said, I tried to be very conservative about this. I don't mean in a political sense. I mean in a cautious sense. I just wanted to get a floor on, on what this could be. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. It could be a heck of a lot higher. But once I reached the point where I felt very confident that we were talking about a number that was equivalent to the biggest tax increase in history, I stopped. Um, I, I think that that, uh, that is a jarring enough figure for anyone. <laughs> it's um, just too depressing. I can't think of anything else. My brain stops. Have it, have, by the way, have you ever tried to count 1.3 trillion on your fingers? That's very hard to do. It's a big, big number. Look, the 12,000 per household is a big enough number for, uh, for me and most folks. But I do, I do want to pick up on a point you made about, well, what's going to happen next year? Because, you know, there was a, a set of comments that came out this week and, and some pretty good reporting around it um, from Jason Furman, a former economist in the Obama administration, who predicted that we could see a V-shaped pattern in economic activity heading into the fall where we've hit this massive downturn. And as we go into the third quarter of the year, a lot of it could come roaring back as we open things up, as frozen sectors of the economy begin to become somewhat more unfrozen. You alluded to airline travel. It's a 13% of a year ago. But as that starts to tick up, you could see a, a really steep growth rate. And that does line up, by the way, with some of the figures that the Congressional Budget Office has been putting out. And so the concern that's been coming in, in, in democratic quarters from a pure political standpoint is, you know, that of course they want the economy to be doing better, but they don't want people to miss the fact that we're in such a deep hole in the first place because of Donald Trump and focus only on the fact that, oh, well, now we're digging our way out of the hole that you created. Aren't you doing such a fantastic job? Um, so that's, that's created some, uh, some, real, some real angst in democratic circles this week. Yeah, I'm trying to figure that out because, you know, Trump for, for all his um, uh, malevolent ignorance is brilliant. I mean, let's face it, we are dealing with a brilliant reality television show host who seems to be coated with a thick Teflon coating. He seems to be wily, slippery. Uh, the 40% of people who adhere to him or cling to him like a virus um, will never leave his side. Uh, as he once said, he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Um, he is... Well, there's uh, polling to back that up, by the way. I understand. That is, that is actually literally true. Yes. I understand. I mean, the, the evangelical community is stuck with him. They think he's a highly moral, moral man. The, cowboy, the cowboys for Trump are clearly with him. The armed protesters love him. 
everybody who's ever felt snubbed or rejected by those liberals loves him. So it's only to say that, that there's a real political challenge. You've got Joe Biden in his basement. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked uh, about what, uh, how Joe Biden in his basement is campaigning. Um, so you've got a political challenge in the first place because Trump has the bully pulpit. He's on TV. He's not wearing his mask. Uh, he doesn't care about that because he wants to show that he's a real man. But from a political standpoint, this is the Scylla and Charybdis of politics. Um, Scylla and Charybdis, who are they, you might ask? Well, in Greek mythology, Scylla and Charybdis were the monsters who were astride either side of the Straits of Gibraltar, which was the end of the world for the early uh, civilizations in the Mediterranean. And Scylla and Charybdis were the monsters through whom uh, you had to pass uh, to try to get in and out. And, and, and so that is also what might be called between a rock and a hard place, but Scylla and Charybdis have a much more intellectual flavor to them that kind of appeals to my to my hoity-toity sense of saying something stupid on radio. But what it means for Democrats is you kind of, you're, you're caught. You, you, for your country, you want things to be doing better. Um, but on the other hand, you want things to be really bad for Trump come November. You want things to be just, just awful. And, and how do you play that from a political standpoint as a party? How do you, how, because he'll just claim victory. He'll say, look what I did. I told you I'd, we'd come roaring back. Here we are. As you can see, I'm great. I came back. I brought us back strongly because nobody is as good as me. What do you do? So, so I, I do think that there is a way to sail through the Straits of Gibraltar like Jason and the Argonauts. See, uh, see, I can do mythology too. Um, and, you know, it, what it comes down to is, yes, of course. I don't think that there is a feeling Democrat out there who is actually hoping for things to go badly. They just, as you say, want things to go badly for Donald Trump. I think the way to thread the needle is to remind people to really nail down the narrative now about the failures that are at the root of all of this. That was part of my motivation in writing this article. Sometimes people, it's too abstract to think in terms of we have lost 100,000 people. And it's more concrete for some people to think about the dollar impact. And so that was part of what I was after. And just remember that polling consistently shows that while it's true, Donald Trump is actually still out polling Joe Biden on handling the economy, which I find surprising, but it's consistently somewhere between mid single digits to even low double digits. Um, d voters trust Democrats and trust Biden much more on both handling of COVID and on health care in general. There was new polling from the Global Strategy Group uh, this week that uh, just kind of made that point. And, and also Democrats should remember the, who are you gonna believe, me 
or your lionized principle. Now, you ran smack dab up against this in 2010 in your U.S. Senate race when the economy was recovering from the crater it was in, but most Americans weren't feeling it yet. So even though the economic numbers on the top line looked relatively rosy, people, it just didn't match. And, and people were being forced to disbelieve their, their eyes. And so, you know, I do think that there's a, a fairly robust set of numbers of research that shows that the middle class working people are, were already uh, a year ago feeling extremely high levels of economic anxiety. They were feeling high levels of economic insecurity. They were feeling a middle class squeeze of costs, things like price of rents, medical care, child care, higher education, all up 20, 30, in the case of higher education, 60% um, at, at, over the last uh, decade or so. And so I do think that there is a story to tell for Democrats that doesn't push them into schadenfreude, into shameful joy, into, into wishing down the economy. Um, that reminds people that, you know, the economy may be working out okay for some, especially for big companies that have gotten bailouts recently, it's really not working out very well for most people. And Donald Trump bears an awful lot of the blame. Folks, you heard it here from Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. We've been off the record uh, for this show, deep in the weeds of the economy, and then what Democrats can do to make sure that we restore some common sense and sanity to the Administration of Governmental Affairs come November. Thanks for listening. We'll be back to wrap up after this word from our sponsors. Don't go away. are back for the final segment of Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hose. And by final, I don't mean forever, but I mean for this show. The show about economists with smart guy Matt Robeson and his article on thealternate.org about the economic costs of the pandemic. And in this show, the political costs of what it would mean if we have a V-shaped recovery. What does it mean for Democrats if all of a sudden, come the fall, the economy is recovered and Donald Trump is smiling, that smug, supercilious mug that only he can wear? What are Democrats gonna do? Matt says, we better start reminding people now how bad it is and keep on saying it, but don't let Donald Trump take credit for making anything better. Any last words, Matt? That sounds awfully grim, but no, I think that captured it pretty darn well. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson and WKXL. Thank you, folks, for listening. You can find our shows archived at nhtalkradio.com. And uh, we're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. It's another happy hour with Paul and Matt deep in the weeds of the trillions of dollars of economic despair caused by the pandemic. We'll be back next week with more Chocular Jollies here on the radio. Thanks, folks. See you next week.